I'm the operator with my pocket calculator. Welcome once again to Radio En Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioenvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 12 years at radioenvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio En Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio En Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio In Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio In Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu slash GES or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo. Thank this terrific, terrific group of underwriters for their support. My guest on Radio En Vivo this week says he is an explorer, working at the frontier where chemistry, biology, and nanotechnology meet. As such, he is pioneering a relatively new field called electrochemistry and making some important and amazing discoveries along the way which we will hear all about over the course of the hour. 
Jeffrey Dick is an assistant professor of chemistry at UNC Chapel Hill. He received his B.S. in chemistry from Ball State University in 2013 and earned his Ph.D. and served his postdoc at the University of Texas at Austin through March of 2018. So, as you might surmise, he just this year achieved his own professorship and independent laboratory called the the Nanoelectric and Bioanalytical Chemistry Lab at UNC. Jeffrey initially came to my attention recently when it was announced that he had been named to Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30 for Science in 29, for 2019. That is quite an honor for a young researcher. Dr. Jeffrey Dick, welcome to Radio in Vivo. Thank you so much. We want to hear all about the wonders of electrochemistry, and I, I hope I was right that it's a relatively new field. I, I guess one could argue that the voltaic pile in 1798 uh, kind of was the beginning of electrochemistry. Okay. And since then, I would also argue at some points that we don't really even still know the mechanism of the voltaic pile. Um, it's a question that I love to ask my students in class. That sounds like a good band name. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before we get too, too deeply into electrochemistry, Jeffrey, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your background, uh, your family, where you grew up, and how you became interested in science. So I grew up in uh, Muncie, Indiana, and um, I went to Ball State University. But my uh, introduction to science really came from my grandpa, Malcolm Dick. And my grandpa was a metallurgist for Indiana Steel and Wire, and so he had a a deep interest in, in, in electrical engineering and also science in general. I remember hours and hours spent on the on the telephone with him talking about uh, <laughs> the cosmos. We would talk about nuclear fusion and fission. We would talk about how to combust hydrogen and, 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 and you get water as a main product and not carbon dioxide. And so he really fueled um, my passion for science. And I remember, you know, from being seven or eight years old, I said I wanted to be the first man on Mars. And so I was always interested in this idea of exploration. And uh, he really fueled that. My my father, uh, Stephen Dick, um, he, he really fueled my passion for communication and communicating scientific ideas. Um, he was a journalist and, and an editor most of his life for an Indiana newspaper. Um, and he really taught me the importance of being able to communicate those ideas effectively not only to scientific colleagues but also to to society as a whole. Wonderful. So you really, uh, the, the seed got planted early on. I would say very early, yeah. And you've, you've managed to follow through on it ever since. Yeah, I always knew, uh, as my website shows, that I wanted to be an explorer. I didn't necessarily know what type, um, and, and passion, uh, my passion for science kind of blossomed early on, and, and then I realized at some point that you can be an explorer at the frontier of human knowledge and, and accomplish all the goals that, that I was passionate about throughout my childhood. That's outstanding. Well, uh, as a Forbes 30 Under 30 scholar, what has it meant to you to establish your own independent laboratory at such an early stage of your career? 
It, it means a lot. Um, I, I think if you look back about 50 years ago, generally um, academic careers were, were less common and, and less competitive, and so folks would start their careers early on, around 22 to 24 year, years old. But, but currently, uh, in the climate, it's, it, it's very competitive. And um, it means a lot to me because it means that I can creatively pursue my own agenda. And um, I've, I've had been sitting on some of these ideas for quite a while, and I've been trained by really outstanding mentors who have taught me which questions are worth pursuit and how to actually ask questions. And um, That's half the battle, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah, yeah, that's really half the battle. And um, so it, it means a lot to be able to have that opportunity to, to start at such an early age. And so uh, you mentioned how competitive is, it is these mm -hmm. days. How are you doing in terms of acquiring funding? Uh, I think I think pretty well. Uh, we <clears throat> have just gotten some funding from the Department of Defense to develop a sensor, um, and it's difficult. Uh, the, the climate is difficult, but at the at the end of the day, it's it's how you it's how you're able to creatively pursue those ideas. And you need to convince people to to fund you, and it's kind of like having a startup in a way. You have to get investors. You have to convince those investors you're the right person to do the job, that you're the right person to carry out the work, and and to see it through to 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 the end. And I'll say the end is a very big gray area because always these ideas end with more questions that beget more uh, avenues of inquiry. So you're you're learning the joys of the study section, I take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. We're setting up the biology portion of my lab now, kind of in parallel with some nanotechnology stuff, as I knew and I do know that biology takes a while to set up and it takes a while to get nice reproducible measurements made. Well, Jeffrey, now that we've learned a little bit uh, more about you, let's dive into your science. Sure. Uh, to get us started, answer a, a basic question question mm -hmm. first where I will showcase my my ignorance <laughs> what exactly is electrochemistry mm -hmm. so I, I guess from about 40,000 feet one could think of electrochemistry as the interplay between electricity and uh, molecules that are freely diffusing in solution um, but if you take a deeper look at that as as many of as you know and many of the listeners know all chemistry is the exchange of an electron and electrons exchange and reactions occur. And probably what distinguishes electrochemistry from organic and inorganic chemistry and all the other chemistries is that it occurs at an interface, whether that interface be between two immiscible liquids, oil and water, or that interface be between a, a metal and, and a solution, mm -hmm. be it oil or water. And so electrochemistry really deals with, with the exchange of charge from one of those interfaces to the other, the kinetics of that charge exchange, how you can make new molecules with that or harness solar, solar energy with that, uh, et cetera. I see. So there, there's a lot going on there. A lot, yes. Indeed. <laughs> uh, well, how do you apply electrochemistry uh, to, to micro and nanoscale biological systems? Sure. So electrochemistry is incredibly powerful. It's, um, uh, in terms of analysis, you cannot beat the spatiotemporal resolution that you get with electrochemistry. During my PhD, 
I worked on making electrodes that were just one atom of platinum. And so we can really get down to the atomic scale with electrochemistry. And in terms of sensitivity, we can make measurements on single nanoparticles, single molecules, viruses, and cells. And so it, it's the next frontier um, of human knowledge, I think. If you go back through human history, we started out with the cosmos. And now we're inventing these, these tools and techniques to really study the, the, the nanoverse instead of the universe. Mm -hmm. And this, this nano regime, there, there are tons of questions because reactivity changes, chemistry changes, everything just changes. Yeah. And we don't understand exactly what's going on for those changes to be occurring and the implications of those. And, and I think electrochemistry is a very powerful tool to start answering some of those questions. Okay, so at, at the nanoscale, uh, which for people who may not be mm -hmm. familiar with that concept, it's a, the extremely tiny yeah. uh, scale. It's a hundred thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. It's very, very small. Okay, uh, and at that scale, various compounds and elements, mm -hmm. their their properties actually change and sometimes quite radically. Correct. Same. These are things that potentially people are trying to harness yes. and take take some kind of advantage of. Correct. It's been known for a while that nanoparticles have a different reactivity than, than a bulk piece of metal. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if one could understand exactly how that reactivity is different, one could design um, different synthetic techniques to to optimize for a certain reaction. Say you wanted to to convert uh, some some type of methanol in a fuel cell, or or you want to reduce CO two, and you want an electrocatalyst, it'll do that very well. Understanding how nanoparticles do that better than the bulk, if they do, mm -hmm. and how to take advantage of that is is a very important field. So what, what types of new knowledge are you seeking as you work to perfect this uh, technology? Sure, that's a, that's a really great question. And so we, we study the single entity. An entity is broadly defined. A uh, single molecule, a cell, a virus, a strand of DNA. Um, it's very broadly defined. And so the new knowledge that we seek um, is, is generally unknown. It's kind of a discovery type of model because we don't necessarily know what we're looking for, but we know that we can make those measurements. And, and we're pushing the envelope, or we're really pushing the limits of human knowledge on how to make those measurements as sensitively as possible. And so if you, if you think about um, uh, fireflies, I'm sure you've heard of fireflies. Most of the, the listeners have heard of fireflies. And around here they call them lightning bugs. Lightning bugs, that's exactly <laughs> right. So if you think of a lightning bug, if you were to observe a, light, a lightning bug um, in a jar, uh, of course, it would blink on and off. But now let's say you've never heard of a lightning bug. You've never seen them. You've never heard of them. And, and I ask you to observe lightning bugs, but a million of them in a big jar. And you'll sit in a room and you'll observe them and you might, um, you might erroneously come to the conclusion that fireflies uh, continuously bioluminesce. Of course, how were you to know when, when fireflies, when you're looking at a million of them, what's the probability they'll blink on and off at the exact same time? 
it's extremely low. Sure. And so not until you actually extract one firefly and, and, and look at that firefly will you see that it blinks on and off. You'll learn a new truth of nature. And nature is, is very reluctant to give up her truths. And so you learn something brand new that you can then tell, tell the world about. And it wasn't until scientists started um, looking at the fluorescence of single proteins, yellow fluorescent protein back in the late 80s, early 90s, that they observed that these proteins actually blink on and off in their fluorescence. And no one had ever seen that before because you're looking at a jar of, of millimolar or so protein, and you're not looking that much, but that's a huge concentration of protein. And so when people started looking at these proteins, they were blinking on and off. They learned a new truth of nature, and they've since used that blinking phenomenon to develop super-resolution microscopy, which garnered the 2014 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. And so not only are there things to learn, new truths of nature to learn down at this level by, by looking at single entities, you can actually make very useful types of um, technologies out of what you learn at that level. I see. Excellent. Well, um, the next question may be a little redundant, but I'm mm -hmm. going to ask it anyway mm -hmm. and see if we get a little uh, different information mm -hmm. from you. Why is the study of single molecules and nanoparticles mm -hmm. important? It's simply it's important in the sense that if you take a census, you get very little information on an individual. Um, you, you don't really get to know that individual. You don't get to know what that person went through, what they're going through to, to give such an answer. You get an average, and you get a bell curve. And it turns out if you make measurements over, if you take that measurement over an individual and you keep going from individual to individual to individual and you pile, compile those, you will get something that looks like the, the census, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's simply to be able to, to learn new truths of nature at that, at that level that aren't obvious when you're making measurements over, over very many. We call them ensemble measurements over ensemble amounts. So it's that's that's very interesting and helpful to understand uh, what what you're up to. I guess uh, my way in was was your uh, ability to study single cells. Yes. Uh, and why why is that so important to advancing biological knowledge? So in terms of biological knowledge, of course, cells are incredibly complex. And it's, um, it's very likely so that one cell sitting next to another cell uh, behave completely differently. And when it comes to human disease, of course, these cells are cross-communicating and, and, and they're, they're, they're speaking to one another. And, and we want to understand that process. We signaling. Will, yeah, signaling, for instance. We want to understand the metabolism of a single cell, how that is affected by other cells around that cell or, or in a tissue. Mm -hmm. and, and we want to be able to translate that knowledge to important biological questions. Well, um, I'm going to read, read a quote back to you okay. from, from yourself uh -oh. <laughs> uh, and, and th along the same line and get you to kind of unpack it for mm -hmm. us. Uh, you talk about gauging the redox environment yep. of a cell mm -hmm. and said, we are developing nanoelectric electrode probes to study how wavelength and intensity of light mm -hmm. affects cell metabolism at the single cell level. Mm -hmm. 
That's that, correct. That sounds awesome. Tell us a little bit more about that. Un unpack that for That's us lay people. Very happy you asked that. I'm, I'm really excited about this project, and it's what we're currently building this new microscope system and stuff in my lab for. So, so I started trying to understand how we can apply nanoelectrochemical techniques to cells. We can, we can take uh, nanoelectrodes, we can make them down to 100 nanometers, which is much smaller than a cell, and one could think of being able to poke it inside a cell and making a measurement. Mm -hmm. And we want to do that. And, and right now, uh, electrochemistry deals with redox, and so the first thought is to be able to look at the different redox. Yeah, what, is, what is redox? Redox, yeah. So it's how molecules uh, exchange uh, electrons, or if they can take an electron or give up an electron. And so that has a huge deal in the cell in terms of communication, because if you have these different molecules that, that can give up electrons or take electrons, it can react with different residues on a protein and change that protein's conformation, and that protein can have different functions. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's incredibly important to understand these different redox properties within a cell to to begin answering some of some of the questions we might be interested in answering about the redox properties in a cell. Okay. And it turns out right now the best way to study the redox state of a cell is by using a, a fluorescent protein indicator. And this fluorescent indicator is, is generally written in the genome of the cell, so the cells grow and they express this protein. And if this protein reacts, the cysteine residues that are on the backbone might change its conformation, and that actually changes the fluorescence. And so in one, for one state of the protein, or an oxidized state of the protein, you might get one fluorescence signal, and then when the protein is reduced and changes conformation, you'll get another fluorescence signal. And generally, people look at the ratio of those signals, and they try to get an understanding of the oxidizability or reducibility of, of the cell cytoplasm as, as a whole. Mm -hmm. And we got interested in this because, um, to, our, to our knowledge, there exists no robust negative control. Uh, how do you do that in fluorescence when, when you, you want to not have light? and you want to understand how light and wavelength and intensity of light affect the cell. Because really, if you're shooting a laser at a cell to make these proteins fluoresce, um, you're putting in almost a joule of energy with a milliwatt laser over, over tens of seconds. And so that's a lot of energy into sure. the cell. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to perturb the cell somehow. Cytochrome C will absorb um, um, different wavelengths of blue light and, so if you're and green light. So if you're trying to excite green fluorescent protein, you might be degrading mitochondrial function over time. And there are some folks who have looked at this on, on the bulk level for So the act of observation cells. is is causing always changes yeah. always mm -hmm. but we want to minimize that perturbation and we want to stick uh, in the cell a, a, a needle-like um, uh, nanoprobe and we want to be able to to use the fluorescent studies to try and understand if sticking that needle in the cell is affecting the metabolism but we also then want to be able to use that needle to to study how wavelength and intensity of light might be affecting the metabolism as well to see how big those perturbations might be. 
So the, the probes themselves uh, act as sensors. Correct. Uh, and can sense changes in light or, mm-hmm. I, I assume, other changes in, uh, in qualities. Yes, that is right. And that's kind of the innovation in our lab. We would love it if we could make these sensors specific to a certain metabolite, say uh, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NAD. It's, it's, it's rife in cells. But only two years ago was the first study published on the on quantifying the amount of NAD in cytoplasm. And I read that and I thought, man, didn't Krebs do this 70 years ago? But no, no, it's not been done. And so it's a huge frontier where, where these, these types of techniques can, can start answering these questions. I see. And so once we do start getting, you, you start getting answers, <laughs> to, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, to these questions, what, what will that what will that tell us? Yeah. So it'll tell us new truths of nature that, that we haven't known before. Um, generally, it can also tell us uh, the metabolism of, of different mitochondria. Mm-hmm. My group is also studying mitochondria from yeast right now to see if we can actually quantify Krebs cycle of single mitochondria and see how that might differ in different disease states of mitochondria. And so just in general, being able to specifically measure different metabolites is important. Sure. Uh, not only NAD, but say fumarate or, or succinate or these different metabolites that are potentially interesting in, in whichever, whichever compartment in the cell you're interested in making the measurement. Andy, with your needle-like probes, you can actually explore different, yes. different geographical areas within the cell. That's the hope, in the yeah. same cell. And we get the spectroscopic information, the imaging information, and the electrochemical information simultaneously. And one can actually think of trying to use dual-barrel pipettes and microfluidic technology to see if we can get some of that DNA and sequence the cell Mm -hmm. as well. And then we have all of these different techniques that we can stack side-by-side and try to to compare and and learn as much as we can. Do you have a, a way to integrate all that data? Yeah, we do, and that's what we're building now, and that's what's taking uh, a lot of time in my lab, and and it's good. I'm an analytical chemist, and as analytical chemists, we generally like to, we we make measurements. It's measurement science, Mm -hmm. and we like to push the frontiers on how sensitive of a measurement we can make. Can we get very high signal to noise? How How do we make noise go away? And the electronics core at the University of North Carolina Department of Chemistry has played an integral role in working with us to to try to push those noise levels down and and integrate all of these different components together with our microscope to be able to make these measurements. Cool. Well, uh, Jeffrey, are you studying uh, single cells in whole animals or or single cells in cell culture or or both? We will start in two-dimensional culture. Um, and I'll be the first to admit that uh, I'm not convinced two-dimensional culture has anything to do with, with, with tissue within a, a living organism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, a, it is probably the platform that most people, where there's the most literature uh, that, to which we can compare our results. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of as proof of concept, we'll go from two-dimensional cell culture on, on of course, um, these immortal cell lines that have been passed and passaged and passaged and they probably look nothing like the original cell line um, but but we'll start there and then we'll kind of work our way up into three-dimensional culture you can think of suspending cells in a gel and trying to 
to study things that way. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go into organoids, uh, where you're looking at different cells that are kind of clumped together in these three-dimensional tissue-like organoid structures. And then eventually try to translate all of that into, into diving in, literally with our nanoprobe, <laughs> to a tissue and making these highly quantitative measurements and, and trying to understand the, the cross-communication between cells, what's going on within a cell, and all of that stuff. Now, the nanoprobes you've mm -hmm. been uh, developing, uh, you describe them as measurement tools. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is there any way that they might have an active presence in, in that location uh, to be able to uh, be d drug delivery devices or yeah, things of that nature? Potentially. One could think of having a, a, an inactive form of a drug that upon being reduced or oxidized on an electrode surface could become an active form, and, and certainly that is one way of being able to turn a drug on, if mm -hmm. you will. Well, that sounds like a good way to deliver chemotherapy per potentially to some of those hard-to-reach areas. Potentially, though it might be very difficult to get a nanoprobe in there. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, well, Jeffrey, I understand that, uh, and you, you've gone into this a little bit, but I'd like to hear a little bit mm -hmm. more, uh, that you are also fabricating metabolite-specific nano-electrodes. What are those designed to do? What, what is that about? So those are designed to... to um, the hope is they will be designed to be, we haven't really made them yet, um, to be able to go into different compartments of a cell and specifically measure with, with a high degree of accuracy uh, the concentration, say, of NAD mm -hmm. or fumarate. Or, you know, I challenge my students, and if they can get a nanoelectrode into a cell and make a measurement within a cell on a single mitochondrion, within that cell and try to see the interplay between uh, mitochondria. Um, I, th I think that we could learn a lot about mitochondrial communication within a cell. And so in the beginning, we'll be sticking these nanoelectrodes into cells without really knowing a whole lot about what we're measuring. And so we'll kind of get this global measurement on this redox environment of mm -hmm. a cell. Redox state generally in the literature is reserved for metabolite-specific uh, measurements. And so this is kind of more of a broad and global. Certainly there will be certain reactions at the electrode, uh, that's what we use, that are contributing to that response. Um, but by making it specific, and we'll do this by putting different uh, hydrogels um, on the electrode surfaces, by making it specific, we can, we can actually know what we're measuring, and, and that will be important. Other than just the redox state, that can actually tell us how the wavelength and intensity of light is affecting this, this sorry, redox environment of a cell. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we really want that, that metabolite-specific information, we'll have to we'll have to innovate the nanoelectrodes a little bit for that. Which I'm sure you will be doing in Can't short wait. order. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, physically, how, how does this work? Mm -hmm. Now, you, you talk about your students uh, mm -hmm. using, using a nanoelectrode mm -hmm. to get into the, the cell. Is, is this all uh, high-resolution microscopy that is guiding this? Uh, how, physically, how does this work? So we do have uh, the environment set on top of a, of a microscope, an inverted microscope. And so we can, we can optically visualize the, um, the cell. One thing that electrochemistry is not limited by is the diffraction limit of light. And so the resolution of electrochemistry is always limited by how small of an electrode you can make. 
Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's pretty powerful because we can then, so what we've done is we put a, a stage on top of that microscope that will hold the nanoprobe, and it's actually built in our lab now if anyone wants to come see it. It holds the nanoprobe. Can you actually see it with the naked eye? You can, you can, and, and you can see the control that we have with the computer. Okay. It holds the nanoprobe, it'll raster it in the X, Y, and Z direction, mm-hmm. and it gives us really very nice spatial control over where the nanoprobe is. The optics also give us the control over where the nanoprobe is because mm-hmm. we should actually be able to see it, at least see the shadow of it. And so we will know when we're going into a cell and, 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 and these, these controls that are all hooked up to the computer will, will be able to, to bring this electrode down, penetrate the cell, and start to make measurements. And then the, the, the microscope will really ultimately tell us where in the cell that nanoelectrode is to be making those measurements. It's just mind-boggling. It really is. <laughs> well, uh, Jeffrey, you described the the manipulation of the size of the electrodes, mm-hmm. spanning nearly nine orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a huge scale, relatively speaking. Why such a gigantic range? Well, they have. Um, that's 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 a great question, um, and it's a great question because it allows me to give a little bit of history about electrodes. Please and do. So in 1798, uh, Luigi Galvani had these these observations that when he stuck different materials inside of a frog, uh, the legs would twitch. And he published this as kind of like the the bioelectrochemistry um, that it is something about life that has this electricity, and uh, Volta, who was uh, a few hundred kilometers down the road, read this paper and tried to generalize it. Um, so he was instead of he realized the frog was just acting basically as a salt solution that could conduct electricity, and so he generalized that by just soaking cardboard and paper into saturated brine and showing that you can also get um, voltage and current um, and what was the voltaic pile. And then electrochemistry blossomed and kind of bloomed from there and and over it's it's an old science it's over 200 years old i stand corrected on that (laughs) (laughs) but there are still very important questions to be answered and and all along it's come up with lots and lots of industrial applications and um, the electrodes started out being huge, being uh, meters and meters. I mean, very big electrodes. You want those in industrial applications. And then they started making millimeter electrodes so they can be a little bit more quantitative or, or they can actually uh, make very nice measurements. And, and they would make these in different shapes. For instance, they would make um, mercury electrodes. Mercury would just drop out and it would keep dropping and dropping. And so whenever they would make a measurement on one of the drops, it would drop away and they would renew their surface. And so that was very convenient. And this was this was the advent of polarography by uh, Yaroslav Horovsky, who won the Nobel Prize in the 1950s for uh, coming up with polarography. And then they started trying to make different materials. Mercury was really nice because it was uh, relatively inert to lots of reactions. So it has, it, it gave a, a pretty big window where you could see reactivity on a mercury surface of some of these molecules and polarography. 
Then they started making other, other electrodes, platinum, gold, carbon. And finally, in the 80s, um, they, they were making millimeter-sized electrodes, and one millimeter or so, and they started calling them microelectrodes. It was probably in the 60s to 80s. So those were microelectrodes, but they were millimeters long or millimeters wide. And finally, um, Mark Whiteman, who was at the University of North Carolina, he was at Indiana University at the time, he, he, he sealed a, a microwire into glass to make the first microelectrode. Actually, you find out that he wasn't the one to make the first microelectrode. It was uh, Martin Fleischmann who was involved in, the, uh, in this cold fusion thing with Stan Pons at Utah. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. His graduate student was the first to make one at the University of Southampton. It's published in this graduate student's dissertation. And he brought this, it was so when Mark went to, uh, to uh, tell everyone about his results at a conference, Fleischman was there and Fleischman raised his hand and said, I've done that before and <laughs> sent Mark the dissertation. It's great. <laughs> so, so now we have microelectrodes, but we already had microelectrodes. So what do you call those? So they started being called ultra microelectrodes. Okay. Because mm -hmm. they're actually micron scale. And then after that, there was a push to go to smaller and smaller electrodes. And the idea behind that is you get very high resolution. Um, you, you get to study chemical reactions in a micro environment. And um, also, it turns out as you get to smaller and smaller electrodes, mass transfers very, very fast to these small electrodes. And that allows one to, to measure kinetic parameters of, of certain reactions. And, and that's of fundamental interest. Mm -hmm. And so I think just historically, this nine orders of magnitude, and then nanoelectrodes started to be developed just so they could uh, get this high resolution in terms of imaging, but also get very fast kinetics. And then in my PhD, I worked on just trying to get one atom onto a relatively inert electrode and make a measurement on that atom. And part of my group right now is studying uh, the reactivity of single atoms in very small clusters and, and trying to understand the, the fundamental nature of those. And so I think that this nine orders of magnitude is just the way that things turned out. Um, people continued to push down further and further and, and, and really tried to push the frontiers. Now, I saw an explanation for this mm -hmm. in, in some of the research I did on you, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to read another quote of yours back to you, <laughs> and that says, to study reactions occurring in living cells mm -hmm. in real time and observe those reactions changing after a perturbation, such as delivery of a drug, mm -hmm. infection, mm -hmm. carcinogenesis, or even aging. Wow. Yeah. You should be able to observe all of those. We hope that by sticking nanoelectrodes, and there's precedence in the literature with, with, with patch clamp, which also won a Nobel Prize, um, that, that these types of experiments don't perturb the cell very much. And they're, they're really exciting frontiers in terms of all of the things that you just read off, like how infectivity is related to, to a cancer response. Um, mm -hmm. You have these, these upticks of certain, um, certain pathways in a cell during cancer that you also have an infectivity, and, and aging as well. So senescence of cells, like that concentration of NAD decreases as, as we get older and older. And NAD is a, is a really nice molecule that can prevent radicals from forming in the cells. And so as you get older, you get more um, uh, people, get more, um, 
more inclined to get diseases like cancer because they don't have these molecules in their cells that can that can prevent that that DNA damage that could eventually lead to cancer. And so all of these areas are important. All of them involve redox molecules and the exchange of electrons. Electrochemistry is poised, really, to be able to make these very quantitative measurements and try to understand these processes at the single cell level. Well, you're, you're going to be coming out with some very important stuff over the next few years, I'm sure. <laughs> I think so. I, I yeah. really hope so. <laughs> now, what about uh, exposures to environmental toxicants? Mm-hmm. Uh, could the capabilities you're describing uh, contribute to toxicology? Yeah, I think so. I, I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of these perturbations change metabolism. And I think metabolism is, is a pretty good, it's a good place to start electrochemically because a lot of the molecules that are that are present metabolism um, are electrochemically active and we can make measurements on those potentially. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's almost generalizable to, to if you have any any environmental perturbation that could change the metabolism somehow. If we could make a measurement on a single mitochondrion in a cell, we should be sensitive enough to make measurements on these other compartments as well and how these different metabolites are changing. Uh, that's that's amazing. Well, uh, Jeffrey, I, w- I would think that this capability would really open up a whole new world of research and hypothesis mm-hmm generation. How, how have you uh, pursued it? That's a good question as well. Um, my background is extremely fundamental and it's about electrocatalysis and making measurements of electrocatalysis on single atoms and small clusters. And um, I got really interested in biology in my, in my PhD. I got to work with some really, truly wonderful virologists at the University of Texas. Um, Jason Upton and his his graduate student Adam Hilterbrand and and Adam is a wonderful friend of mine now and, and we talk very often about about these ideas um, but working with them we were able to detect a single uh, cytomegalovirus in mouse urine in, in the urine of infected mice mm-hmm. and um, that was a really really um, high point, I think, in my career because it made me realize that not only can these studies of single entities allow us to learn something new about nature, it, it represents the ultimate limit of detection in analysis. The specific detection, just one, be that a virus or a molecule, if you can specifically detect just one, uh, it, it's extremely powerful. And so after working with them on trying to detect uh, viruses in in urine of infected mice, I really got interested in the biology. And so I joined uh, Kyle Miller and his team for a short postdoctoral fellowship before starting my faculty position to learn cell biology techniques and how to grow cells and treat them well, et cetera, et cetera, and all the caveats that go with those, right. <laughs> with that treatment. And, um, and, and I really wanted to put myself in the position where I could take the nanoelectrotechnology that I'd, that I'd learned about in graduate school that, I'd, that I wanted to develop, and I could apply it to these biological systems where we can get this subcellular, this compartment level information. Well, it, with so much uh, opening up uh, over the course of uh, developing the new technology, uh, how are you able to narrow all this down and, and focus on particular uh, 
uh, questions or, or issues? That's a, it's very difficult because now we're at the beginning stage. Now we're at the stage where, where we're more interested in building the tool that can make the measurement than in the biological question that we'll be answering. Certainly, I'm sure that, this, that these measurements will be able to, to uh, answer very interesting biological questions, but right now we're we're building the tool that will that will be able to answer those, and so that's where collaborators come in. Collaborators who have this uh, background in biology, who know the real biological questions, the interesting biological questions, we can go to them and present this tool as, as potentially a means of, of being able to quantify at the subcellular level, um, a hy per perhaps they have a hypothesis that we could help on. Mm -hmm. And we'll be learning as we go too. I mean, we're, we are not afraid to get into a new field. I think that's how human knowledge is expanded. And so mm -hmm. we will also be getting into the field and asking these questions. And as we ask those questions, questions beget more questions and I'm sure we'll develop our more specific hypotheses as well to explain some of these processes absolutely well you actually anticipated my next question which was about potential collaborations sure. uh, I'm sure you'll be developing quite a few Yes, and with the medical school at UNC, um, with collaborators at Duke and, and NC State, just the research triangle area itself mm -hmm. um, is is rife with opportunity for collaboration. I'm very excited about that. That was one of the major drawing points to coming to the University of North Carolina. Their chemistry department is also very well ranked. The analytical division is ranked number two in the nation right now behind Purdue University. Um, so it, it, it's a I think it's a really amazing place to do science, and it's really amenable to, to collaboration. Wonderful. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Dick from UNC Chapel Hill, and we are discussing his remarkable work in electrochemistry and single-cell biology. Uh, well, Jeffrey, among all the incredible capabilities that you've described, I was particularly intrigued with the notion of being able to detect a single virus particle mm -hmm. in a sample, uh, what does such an ultra-sensitive probe capability bring us? It brings us, um, it brings us, it really gives us the ability to detect, say, a virus, or, or virus was kind of a proof of concept, or a protein, or a colloid, uh, one at a time. And so it, it allows us to start thinking about making uh, a diagnostic technique where the limit of detection is just one. Mm -hmm. And the limit of quantitation is limited by, by how long you want to make to make that measurement. So, so for the virus, if you think about this whole idea of limit of quantitation, I said, is how long you want to wait. What does that mean? So if you have an Olympic-sized pool and you have a, a pole um, that's in the middle of that pool, just think it's like a one-inch pole or so. It's not very big. It's small compared to the pool. And then you throw in some ping-pong balls. If you have a lot of ping-pong balls, they're going to be colliding with that pole right? But if you just put in one ping pong ball to that Olympic-sized pool, it's going to take a long time for it to just randomly collide with the pole. Yeah. And so the concentration of virus within a sample um, greatly affects the, the collision frequency with, with the microelectrode or nanoelectrode. And so that's what I mean by the limit of quantitation is limited by how, how long you would like to wait. Right. And so it 
really brings. So how do you how do you know when when to stop when the whatever you're looking for just is not there? Uh, that's that's a great question, and and really it, it's it's difficult. It's difficult. So when you get this type of false negative, and and these electrodes are problems, right? They're caveats. They deactivate over time. Don't let me convince you that this is all perfect and sure. it's going to work out very well because there are <laughs> lots of caveats, especially with nanoelectrodes going into cells, deactivation over time, how we correct for that, how we mitigate that. These are all very difficult things that, that we can that, that we have to address. And so in addressing that, how do you, how do you know if it's just one electrode? Well, let's try to make arrays of microelectrodes where we can make these new electronic topologies that can measure all of those different electrodes almost simultaneously and really vastly increase the area so that we don't really have to wait as long, mm -hmm. but we don't compromise the resolution by making the electrode too big since we just have arrays of microelectrodes now. And okay. so there, there are kind of tricks that need to be innovated, and, and no one has just gone that far to, to try to make these. So we can come out with a point-of-care diagnostic device that you can take out into the field and, and, and use, and it's robust. Well, it sounds like uh, you have a lot of reasons to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jeffrey, I, I wanted you to tell us more about this uh, technology that you have developed mm -hmm. called the Focused Ion Beam Nano Slice Tomography. Sure. What is that, and uh, what was the need for that? So, uh, so in my lab, kind of strategically, um, I have decided to... Uh, in parallel with the biology, uh, have a, another project that produces results quite quickly, and it makes my graduate students very happy, and it also makes me happy. Um, but we're, we're, we've been electrodepositing from water droplets, and basically what we do is we take a, an oil phase, we add in a little bit of water, just so five milliliters of oil, maybe 50 microliters of water. We ultrasonicate that, and we get this, we get this uh, emulsion, and the most, uh, the most famous emulsion, of course, is milk. Um, but but this is not not milk. No one should drink this. <laughs> These are little water droplets that are suspended in, in in oil, and so we have been electrodepositing from these water droplets. And I can get in a little bit into into why that's important. But but we electrodeposited these uh, platinum nanoparticles, and and we we wanted to uh, test whether or not they were porous because these nanoparticles were much bigger than we actually expected with the amount of platinum initially that was put into the droplet. And it turns out there was no very good technique to test the porosity of single nanoparticles. Transmission electron microscopy is, is used uh, ubiquitously to look at, to look at porous metal nanoparticles, but that kind of necessitates electrodepositing on a TEM grid. It's a very specialized grid, so you can make these measurements. And the electrodeposition mechanism is extremely different from substrate to substrate. And so we really wanted to come up with a new technique that would that would be able to uh, look, at, look at porosity of single nanoparticles, kind of independent of substrate, where you don't have to worry about what substrate you're on, so long as it's conductive. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that we've been able to do is with this focused ion beam nanoslice tomography, I'm very happy to say we just got reviews back for that paper. There are three minor revisions, so should be published very soon. Um, but we were able to use a focused ion beam, which is a gallium ion beam, 
And what this ion beam does is it is it is it cuts. It, it basically etches through metal. And so we pushed down the resolution. Mike Ramsey at UNC, um, who does a lot of microfluidic stuff, was able to cut five nanometer slices uh, with this focus ion beam. So we knew that the resolution was there, and we, we knew that someone had done it at UNC before. And so we tried to take our nanoparticles and slice them every five to ten nanometers. And then we were able to do that. My graduate student worked a long time to get that to work. The beam slightly damages the nanoparticles, and so we had to use a blind alignment, and that's very difficult to do. And then sometimes when you cut, it's nowhere near the field of vision that you're, you use another technique actually to visualize what you're looking at, the scanning electron microscope. Mm -hmm. And so there are all these very difficult things in, in, in this experiment, but we were able to very robustly be able to cut nanoparticles every five to ten nanometers after we learned about these caveats and we got good at it. Go. And then we, we recapitulated these slices into uh, a three-dimensional rendering and uh, we, we saw the pores. They're porous. So we see the pores. What's really cool is I think that we've kind of stitched together a physical property of porous nanoparticles. It's really been unavailable until now, and that is the, um, the tortuosity of nanopores. I saw that term, and I was <laughs> determined to find out what that meant. <laughs> and did you? Yeah, I'm about to, I believe. <laughs> so, so you can think of tortuosity as a measure of, of winding. And so if I, I can, for instance, measure the tortuosity of the Mississippi River. And so I can get a, a basic idea how how windy the Mississippi River is by a tortuosity value. Okay. A tortuosity value is, is the complete distance of the Mississippi River, or, or the complete length, divided by the path a bird would fly from the beginning to the end. Hmm. So you can think of it as a distance divided by the displacement, where the to a tortuosity value of one is a perfectly straight type of, or perfectly straight river. Okay. Nanopores have the same thing. They twist and they wind throughout nanoparticles. It's like a cavern, basically. And we make an assumption of, of what, of what uh, path of the cavern is connected to the preceding path. And we do that with a center of mass argument. We can, we can tune that. Um, but, but you can get this information on nanopore tortuosity, or how windy these pores are, by using this nano-slice technique. My, my group likes to call it slice and dice. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Jeffrey, we're, we're, we don't have a lot of time left, so before we run out, mm -hmm. I did want to uh, kind of switch gears a little bit sure. and ask you about your, your uh, passion for and commitment to mm -hmm. Effective science communication. Yes. Uh, needless to say, you're singing my tune when you promote <laughs> that. Why are you such a believer in that? I think that uh, academicians have two two main uh, job descriptions. The first is understand nature. The second is to use that understanding to the benefit of humankind. And if, if you'll look, a lot of the funding mechanisms that we have um, are based on, on grants from the U.S. government. And those are all uh, fueled by American taxpayer money. And so at the end of the day, not only do I want to communicate uh, our findings and our passions to, to my colleagues in science, but I, I really think that, that the job necessitates communication to society as a whole. 
Well, tell us about this project you've got going called Project EE, <laughs> Ecam for Everyone. Ecam for Everyone. So my dream is that uh, North Carolina will be the place to do electrochemistry. And UNC has a really strong tradition in electrochemistry with Mark Whiteman and, and microelectrodes, Royce Murray and what he's been able to do with nanoparticles, and, and just the innovative foundations that they have laid throughout their careers. Um, I, I want North Carolina to be the place to do electrochemistry. And so what students have done in my class this past fall is they've all built their own potential stats. We call it a sweep stat. And this potential stat is what an electrochemist will use to make an electrochemical measurement. And we've been able to build these all for, for less than $50 a piece. All 24 students in the class built their own sweepstat. They, they used the Be a Maker space at UNC, which is another wonderful thing, to, to use the free 3D printing mechanism to build a box around their potential stats. They came to my lab to, to test the efficacy of their potential stat on macro and micro electrodes. And then they, they were charged with the responsibility of simulating all of that with some digital simulation software. And so my hope is to be able to expand this into a research for, for undergraduate education at UNC where they all can put together these potential stats and then every high school in North Carolina will be equipped to make uh, measurements uh, w with these sweep stats mm -hmm. and start learning the value of electrochemistry, the, the inexpense of electrochemistry. I told you we can make these around $50 or so less. Sure. $50. They're incredibly inexpensive. They're incredibly sensitive. We can make measurements on microelectrodes. They're incredibly quick. You can make measurements quite quickly. And, um, and so I really hope to be able to, to expand people's um, knowledge in electrochemistry, starting here at North Carolina and then, and then going out throughout the United States and eventually the world. It's important. Well, Jeffrey, best of luck with that Thank effort you. <laughs> and your uh, general efforts in, in the scientific world, uh, which are very exciting. Thank you. Uh, it's been great spending an hour with you here on Radio and Vivo. Thank you for having me. I certainly me. learned a lot, <laughs> and I'm sure our listeners did as well. I want to wish you the best of luck for continuing success Thank you. in your research career. We'll be watching. <laughs> uh, we've got some great guests lined up. In the coming weeks here on Radio and Vivo, you can check the website, radioandvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio and Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on volunteer-powered WCOM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy the show, we ask that you support this radio station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.